for my mental health. I don't want England to beat Germany. That is such a penalty. Should it be a red card? I don't think it should be a penalty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off. I'm off. For the best Euro 2020 coverage, subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast and download the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Quick start car insurance you can sort anytime online, then bounce on with your day. Get a quote today at getsetgo.ie. From my mental health, I don't want England to beat Germany. That is such a penalty. Should it be a red card? I don't think it should be a penalty. <laughs> yeah. I'm off. I'm off. For the best Euro 2020 coverage, subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast and download the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Quick start car insurance you can sort anytime online, then bounce on with your day. Get a quote today at getsetgo.ie. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now you're very welcome back. So we're going to chat through the Sunday Papers. I'm very happy to say we have Tommy Martin of Virgin Media Television with us, Gavin Kumiski of the Irish Times. I'll give you a sense of the back pages first of all. So the Mail on Sunday, first of all, Murray Shock. Gatlin places his trust in Ireland's scrum half to take over as Lions captain following cruel injury to Alan Wynne-Jones against Japan. Also a picture there on the back page of Gareth Bale. Hands on his head, Welsh dream in tatters. Beaten 4-0 yesterday against Denmark. The Sunday Times go with that picture of Alan Wynne-Jones walking off the pitch in the first 10 minutes yesterday at Murrayfield. I think you could tell by the photo between his facial expression and the way the medic was holding his shoulder and arm that something serious had happened. Wounded line, Alan Wynne-Jones and Justin Tipperick, the brilliant Justin Tipperick as well, out of the uh, tour as Conor Murray assumes captaincy. That's the lead in the Sunday Times. The Observer here, it was a bad day for Wales really, wasn't it? They've captured it with the two photos. Gareth Bale on the top half and Alan jones on his knees holding his shoulder and arm on the bottom half. Broken Dreams is their headline. The Sunday Independent go with the GAA yesterday. Kerry's flying start, so a picture of Sean O'Shea who scored 1-7 yesterday against Clare. And beneath that, the main story, Brendan Fanning here, Murray gets captain role for Lions Tour. Jones' injury opens door for Ireland's star to take over. Then we have the Sun, picture of Gareth Bale mournfully applauding the fans after the 4-0 win yesterday. Dane 4, Bale KO'd. And then a picture as well of Federico Chiesa, who scored that brilliant goal for Italy yesterday. I'm not sure which of his three touches was better. 2-1 winners against Austria. That game went to extra time. They also, on the back page of the Sun, have O'Shea's of Reckoning. That's Aidan O'Shea and Sean O'Shea, both amongst the goals yesterday for Mayo and Kerry, respectively. And then Murray is Lion King. Next, I have the Sunday World. Mayo get off to a flyer out west. And also, Jack's got to wait. Picture of Jack Grealish and Harry Kane in their England jerseys together. So it would seem Manchester City, says Kevin Palmer, will only make a move to sign Jack Grealish if if they fail to lure Harry Kane away from Spurs. We had heard the Grealish deal was happening during the week, but now it seems it's only a backup option to getting Harry Kane. The Mirror, back page there, Handy Murray. This is Conor Murray again. Thumbs up with Jack Conan yesterday at Murrayfield after the game. At that stage, Conor Conor, uh, Murray very much, I would suspect, not thinking he was about to be the captain of the Lions tour. But he is. And uh, inside a picture of James Ryan, who didn't get the call yesterday to replace Alan jones Initially, we were wondering why. Now it seems he picked up a short-term injury in Ireland training. Now, we don't know would he have got the call otherwise, but certainly he was injured and so couldn't have gone or couldn't have played in the short term. That's the back page of the Mirror. Tommy Martin, you're there. Hello. Hi, Joe. And Gavin Cummins, give you the Irish Times. Hello, Gavin. How are you, Joe? So often these Lions games, it takes a while to get going. Plenty to talk about on the back of yesterday's game, Gav. They've lost their captain. That is no small thing to lose, I would put it to you. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's enormous. And the fact that they've gone with Murray meant they don't have a ready-made replacement for Alan Wynne-Jones as a leader. Um, simply, I'm not, I'm not saying anything wrong with Conor Murray as a leader, but he's just never done it. So, you know, that's just a fact. Um, the, the easy thing to do is to lean on, oh, Gatlin turns to Welsh people as he always does, it's unfair it's, and all that, but it actually isn't because I think James, James Ryan's injured. Um, I'd actually argue that James Ryan's been injured for about 18 months on and off, and that's why he hasn't been the player that we got, we're getting used to. Um, and Sam Underhill has a concussion. I, I, I don't understand how Josh Navidi could be considered a better open player than a fit Sam Underhill, the guy we saw at the World Cup. I think he's one of the best open sides in the world. So I think Underhill's concussion ruled him out. 
So he's what happened then is if you're a coach who knows Welsh players and your your preferred Irish and English athletes aren't available, you go with what you know. So in that sense, it's it's fun. Uh, funnily enough, I think the Sunday papers haven't had time to get the grips. They just this happened too too quickly last night for them to get the grips and really analyze what Gatlin's his left left wing brain you know and they weren't able to kind of get around to it but i'm sure uh if you look back in the 09 tour when o'connell was captain i'm sure the english papers and the english will turn slowly but surely on the the limerick captain as soon as things go wrong i'm sure he'll he'll need to be prepared for a lot of focus on him Mm. as soon as anything goes wrong if the tour even happens well, we'll come to that. There's breaking news on that front. Stephen Jones, I think, Tommy, on page two of the Sunday Times caught the sombre nature of the affair at Murrayfield yesterday. I mean, plenty of drama here. He says, nothing that happened otherwise in an admittedly enjoyable occasion could shake it out of its nightmare. There is always yeah, the horrible chance when you stage these pre-tour games that you may lose a player for the tour itself. But the sight of Alan Jones, the captain, bastion and driving force being led from the field in the seventh minute enveloped the whole day in gloom. The giant Jones has become a leader of almost mystical proportions as well as a great luck. So I think uh, he went for it there, Stephen Jones. Yeah, I, I think like, Stephen Jones is, at a, is frothing at the mouth at this stage for the, for the Lions. He's at a, a state of just, you know, he's four years of, of build-up. He's ready to go, ready to rock. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing about, I guess the thing about rugby, and you, can, you know, you can look at warm-up games in, in different sports and, and they can be half half baked and half ass you can't I guess you can't really play rugby uh, to that uh, in that way in the same uh, to the same degree so you're going to get in these type of games you're going to risk injuries that feel completely that that make the game seem even more pointless than they already were and and not not just pointless but uh, incredibly damaging and uh, and self um, uh, self harming um, it put me in mind of um, when David Wallace got injured Playing against England before I think it was the 2011 World Cup. I remember being at uh, the game in the Aviva, watching, it and it was that great, you know, pre-World Cup thing. And as always, we fancied our chances, and it just permeated the whole thing with this real sense of well, what what is the point of yeah. this, you know? And by I, I think you know, there's there, that's the tone of, of Jones's his coverage is like, well, this you know, pointless pointless match, or maybe it's one of the other papers. But I guess you, you mean you do have to play matches and you, you know you're never going to go into the first test with you can't wrap them in cotton wool mm. and as, if they're going to go out onto the fields there's going to be the risk of an injury but I, I think the captain thing captaincy thing is a really interesting thing i mean what is is it the case is because uh, i i've seen it's possibly here um that they didn't have it's yeah sunday times they didn't have the the connor murray um news in some of the pieces um and the, the Maro Toje was mentioned, um, and I've seen him mentioned elsewhere uh, in, in some other preview, saying that wouldn't have been a great story to have um, a person of Nigerian origin uh, or, or um, heritage captaining a Lions uh, team in South Africa. So I don't know, maybe Gavin can explain, is, is, is that a case that, he, is he not considered, was he considered a contender in this? Um, oh, oh, I think Gatlin picked Conor Murray because he's going to be playing in the team and he can't guarantee Farrell or Toje will play in the team. I think that's the captaincy thing. But you hit a good point on um, the Dave Wallace thing. But funnily enough, I think it'll be easy enough for them to turn the page on Win Jones, just like Ireland were able to turn the page really quickly after Wallace, who was probably our greatest ever open side at that time because Sean O'Brien oh. filled the slot straight away. Um, with Win Jones, I personally think a Toje, Laws and Hill would have been the test. I don't think Win Jones would have made it to the test series because I think age was catching up on him. I know he had a great Six Nations and all that, but mm. and a great leader and one of the great second rows of our time. But mm. time was ticking along as we saw with Paul O'Connell in the 2015 World Cup. It, it catches you when you need to be at your most, your most fittest. Um, so I think they can turn the page player-wise quite quickly. Um, and he's gone and picked Adam Baird, which he's he'd be able to come around and go, look, look at the size of... He's built, basically replaced Wynne Jones with a guy who's the same size as the Springbok second rows. So... There have no doubt where this tour is going. There's going to be another, I'd say, 15 players heading out. Um, this is when you have no off season or you have no test match rugby for a year in the South African sense. Yeah, you're going to get. We're watching an, uh, an epidemic of sports injuries at the moment. Pick the NBA. Pick everything. I'm, the Euros is the only place that hasn't been devastated by it. And I think if you um, if you look at it from that sense of it, uh, rugby has just been suffering. And again, I bring it back to James Ryan. We I think we'd have James Ryan on this tour if he hadn't have been. Um, 
carrying injuries or played or played too much rugby in the last. Three and has years. he played too much, Gav? Yeah, because we hear all the time that the Irish players are managed so well, and he's not out there playing against the Dragons away every Friday night. Like we're, we're told that the Irish players do, by comparison with their English counterparts, for instance, have their minutes very well managed. Okay, so I I, I went to I'd say James Ryan. I've been at every match James Ryan played for for Leinster. Or Ireland in 2017-18-19 mm. uh, and he played 80 minutes almost every single time I'd actually ventured that he never came off for that period of time and there was never a chance of let's take him down a notch because Ireland were in a lot of those games and either side of the ball tackling or carrying James Ryan became the most important rugby player in Ireland um, and he was brilliant at it and he was double double figures every time he had the, a game you know he was always bright to 15-20 carries for real yards 15, 20 tackles. And he was outstripping the back rowers and it was like, we've got this great player. And I have to say, it's only in retrospect. We were all worried at the time, 80 minutes, 80 minutes, 22 years old. Uh, He was broken, you know. Um, There's no other way of explaining why he is not uh, the 2018 version of himself. He's two years older now. He should Mm. be better. He should be bigger. Are lots of the Irish players not the 2018 version of themselves though? Could be just Um, four. But he was 21, what was he, 21 years old? Mm. You're supposed to be better when you're a world-class player at 21. You're supposed to be a way no. better version. By no, 24. I accept that. But you could apply the same thing to Stockdale. You could apply it to a 25-year-old. You could apply it to a 28-year-old. Like we don't know if it's injury. I'm not saying you're wrong, by the way. It just could be injury. But equally, it could injury. just be form. It could be form. You know, like much of the 2018 18 team have not hit those heights since. But the for- a form uh, accusation of Ryan doesn't make sense to me because. Now, granted, people started to figure him out, but that was the other thing what happened was they're going, look, he's our, he's their primary ball carrier and he's damaging us all the time. So we have to hurt him mm. when he carries the second, third point. So they're lining up beards and Alan Wynne-Jones is to smash him, you know what I mean? Um, so that's what happened. That's what I personally think what happened. Yeah. Behind. There was a shoulder injury where he came back awfully quickly. Um, right. And it's, look, he's injured again now, you know, so it feeds into the yeah. whole thing. Um, mm. It's very hard to go after uh, Gatland when Gatland, I think you marked it on your show like about a year ago that uh, he wasn't over the moon. And Gatland's, Gatland's so open that sometimes you don't see the you don't see the line. You don't see exactly what he's saying, you know. He basically listed off several Irish players and then I had to say, what about Ryan? And he sort of said, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah, Ryan. But it was in hindsight, very instructive. Just on Murray and further to your point, Tommy, that the Sunday papers may didn't have time to react to the news last night. Stuart Barnes just by quirk of coincidence, has decided for his piece on the match yesterday to just write a glowing piece about how well Murray played. Now, there's absolutely no mention of Murray being captain, but I guess if there's two aspects to Murray out there, it's how he's going to play and then secondly, being captain. So according to Stuart Barnes, he was brilliant yesterday. He said, compared to the likes of Gareth Davies and Ali Price, that there is not another player or sorry, that neither are remotely in the class of Murray and that there's not another player, not another player as assured of his test place as the Irishman. Uh, yesterday, he was sharp from the start, didn't make a mistake for 15 minutes. When he did, it was the charge down. Uh, Murray, he says later on, slipped back into the red of the lines like he'd never been away. He did not box kick often in the first half, but when he did, it was on the money and his chasers were in position to regain possession. He was master of his forwards. They played quick phase ball. He demanded and served a stream of accurate passes. In particular, he threatens the short side. He didn't make another error until he kicked a ball out in the full 55 minutes into the game. And so it was just glowing. For Murray, this was the ideal start. Now, like I said, he doesn't touch on the fact that he's about to be captain. So, I mean, there's two aspects, I suppose, Tommy, to being captain. There is one being on the pitch, talking to the referee, getting on the referee's good side, all the tricks of the trade that go with that, making decisions over whether or not to kick for the posts or not. And I'm sure there'll be a leadership group helping out with those decisions. But Murray has never even captained Ireland. So this is going to be a steep learning curve. And then secondly, there's being captain of the tour, I presume. Suddenly you've a bunch of speaking engagements to do and places to go and hands to shake. Maybe that's curtailed with the pandemic. I don't know. But you would think at his age he could handle that latter side reasonably well. It's going to be very interesting. He seemed as surprised as anybody to get the nod. I, that's the one, the the line that, that stopped, jumped out to me just reading the, the news piece and, and, and the news pieces in the papers um, that in an 89 test career, he, he had never captained Ireland. And you'd think at some stage it would have been, well, Connor, Connor captained the team today in, in a, you know, a game against... Georgia or USA or some some fixture that it would have transpired that he would have you know that he was never 
he was never given you know given given the captaincy and as as Gavin says about about you know we remember about the O'Connell thing and and you know the pressure that he was put under you know the Lions captain people like Stephen Jones <laughs> you know who take all this this sort of thing very seriously and and scrutinize it and weigh it with the the giants of the past um and, and compare them and in this you know as you say it's it's going to be a difficult one and people are going to be if if the if the famous bonding and the famous fraternity you know spirit of fraternity and, and brotherhood doesn't transpire you know people will people will he, he'll just get questioned because people will will write you know their hot takes on you know <laughs> they lose the first test fingers will point at the captaincy of Connor murray even if he does nothing wrong so i'm i mean it's huge listen the, the Lions, as, as as we all know, it's it's the most uh, and, you know rugby can can definitely it's 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 guilty of reaching for the faux epic and the uh, you know overwrought um, you know build up to to anything. But you know Lions is the one thing that the people buy into, the players buy into it, the rugby media, the rugby fans buy into it so much. So what what like it's, to, to me it's it's a it's a huge mm. um, it's it's a huge story that mm. Connor Murray is is even even the, the tweet I saw a picture Connor Murray captures the lines it just seemed odd like and I don't I don't mean to to second guess what job he's going to do or maybe this was the maybe he'll turn out to be the the, the job he was born to do but it just it it did stand out he, that yeah. he wasn't this sort of Willie John McBride type figure no. uh, that I was looking at we've never had him as captain material or particularly vociferous in our minds I think Gav you'd have a sense of Murray how will he do do you think how do captains who've never captained before tend to find their feet early on what's your sense of all this uh Conor Murray, have you, have you just come across me, he's as cool as they come. So, And he's gotten so much stick from the Irish media over the years for not being the guy who performed in Chicago at Soldier Field um, that I don't think he cares about. I don't think he ever really did. I don't think it got to him. Um, one thing, so media is not going to be an issue with him. He does it real coolly. He's quite, uh, he's, he's very quotable. So um, he'll put out like a straight bat message, but like sometimes with a bit of interest and stuff, you know, you can ask him anything. Mm. Uh, but I'd also venture that Conor Murray's spoken to referees more times than any Ireland captain he's ever played with in games. Right. Because he's constantly, and he's a very good communicator, doesn't doesn't get in a ref's face, doesn't get exacerbated. It'll be straight, monotone. Um, and also he's in charge of the tactics on every team he plays on, especially Joe Schmidt's Ireland team. Murray was the complete general of that because it was going up in the sky. Um, I imagine there'll be a lot of that. He'll have control of that now, but he already did. Yes. So he's driving the game. Because who's the out half? Can anyone pick the out half yet? But Maybe does, Dan it Bigger. does look like bigger, doesn't it? Yeah, if they, if they pick bigger, they won't win the test series. But um, yeah, why, it why does look So, so sorry, who, who do they need to pick a 10 to win the test series? Well, I think they need to pick on Farrell because just he'll kick his goals and defensively. And um, I don't think it needs... Bigger's a better footballer. But uh, they're gonna have to go. I like. A, I'd love to see a Farrell, Bundy, Aki, uh, Robbie Henshaw midfield. I think that's as mm. that's as good as it, that's as good as it'll get. But again, these things. Bigger is playing well. He, you know, he's been playing well for a year and all that. But it's not guaranteed because and like a Welshman will be captain of this team now if they, any of them were guaranteed their places. So if Bigger was nailed on. He'd probably be the captain. Uh, Gatlin, Gatlin just kept it simple. He goes, "Who's got, who's definitely going to be on my team?" Mm. Uh, without giving it an obvious away and. And then when do you think it's, it's, does that suggest Gavin that he 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 doesn't view the captain with the same sort of mythical qualities uh, that that some people might he, you know that he he's a very has a very pragmatic and, and nuts and bolts view of the whole uh, thing or yeah Gavin gets gets and I've definitely done it myself in the past because you pick went with the Jonathan Davis call Gatlin definitely gets loads of stick for going with the Welsh but every time he's made a hugely controversial decision. Uh, on the lines, yeah. it's paid off. Yeah. They've won, and so that proves that he doesn't think with Welsh eyes. And don't forget, he's a Kiwi. Like he thinks with winning eyes. He always does. He always thinks, but how can I? What's the best? What's the most practical thing for us here now? How do we get on this plane without everyone being staring at their shoelaces? How do we get them back in good form? And it was just like, okay, I'll make everyone likes Conor Murray, very personal guy, one of the leadership group. I'll do that again. He, he's just using he's just using logic so he can move on really quickly and effectively. Gatland, he's ruthless. He's like, how do I move on? How do I get everyone to stop talking about Alan Jones as quick as I can? <laughs> and Murray's a perfect thing for the British media to get their teeth into because they'll be upset, some of them, you know? And they're waiting mm -hmm. for him to slip. But when, like, uh, eventually at some stage in the tour, the captain will be put under loads of heat and it'll be Murray at the top of a table with people slinging rocks at him. And uh, he's no, he, he, you're no better man than to handle all that stuff. Mm. 
You're very welcome, Max. So Gavin Kuminski and Tommy Martin with us reviewing the Sunday papers. Latest in the Ulster Championship, down eight points. Donegal won 16 in Uri. So Donegal, you would think, already home and hosed. Second half just starting. One downer for Donegal. Michael Murphy off after half an hour limping. Not terribly, but he was limping nonetheless. Physio uh, strapping an ice pack to his left hamstring. I see Maliki Clerken tweeting that. So that is a concern. And John Fogarty of the Irish Examiner tweeted, Tommy Martin doing a newspaper review during his county's Ulster preliminary round game. I didn't think Donegal did arrogance. Well, I mean, Tommy Martin, he may lower himself to watch an Ulster final, but nothing before that, Tommy, am I right? Well, his paper review comes first, uh, Joe, at all times. Funny <laughs> enough, when, when Gavin was talking about player injuries and the impact of, of uh, you know, overplaying, uh, Michael Murphy was just hobbling off with his uh, hamstring strapped in ice. So mm. I, uh, I was going to try and crowbar it in somewhere, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it is probably probably vaguely related. But um, that would have just scored a goal, actually, and just had a, a, another goal chance. So it's all to play for. Oh, sure. What a disgrace. Oh, sure Ulster it is. Football. Ulster football relegated to the, the lunchtime uh, minor slot. Hmm. Munster hurling bias again by the GA. It's a disgrace. I was wondering why you were continually looking over your left shoulder for the last half hour, so I now won't take that personally. So, gents, let's pick things back up before we just put a bow on the lines chat. We've talked Conor Murray and Alan jones and then the situation on the ground. For people just uh, tuning in, the short version, three Springbok players have tested positive in camp after a three-week camp. We don't know if it's one of the late arrivals or somebody who's been in camp where they've been in a biosecure bubble for the last three weeks, that really would be very concerning. So training cancelled indefinitely. They're meant to play Georgia on Friday as part of one of their two warm-up games. And the broader situation is maybe even the bigger problem. 12,000 cases in the Gotang province, which is Johannesburg and Pretoria. First three lines matches are there. Basically in Gotang, uh, 60 to 65% of all national cases are focused there. It's home to 15% of the population. So it very much is the epicentre. There is a third wave kicking off at the moment. Things are expected to get very serious there over the next while. The optics of the tour may come into question. Who knows? But even just getting the tour done, there is a talk, Murray Kinsella in the 42 uh, this morning, there is talk of moving all three tests to Cape Town away from the Gauteng province to try and get this thing done. There's talk of all of the games going except for the three tests and Murray wrote as well that it's understood that the Lions who are fully vaccinated have growing concerns over the viability of their tour. Gavin, this is incredibly serious. I mean, they're just off to um, not even a standing start here. They're on the back foot here with this tour. Very messy already. There was never a point when this wasn't going to be the case. I I remember ringing Dionne Quinnigan a year ago who was a former Ireland rugby captain and a GP in Cape Town and he was literally, I can't speak because my it is, my my GP practice is overrun with people with patients, um, and there hadn't been enough. There's been never a point where we've seen enough improvements in South African society for it to be not a major concern. And I thought what Craig Ray said on your show when he compared playing rugby in COVID is similar to playing rugby in apartheid or sport. Um, that when a rugby journalist who whose livelihood depends on the games going ahead says something like that, you know we're in we're in major major trouble. Um, every time this kind of stuff happens in the last year and a half, and you try not to be too overly critical of people trying to cope with COVID schedules, but it just feels like the scene in Jaws where Mayor Vaughan, Chief Brody, and Hooper are trying, one of them is trying to close the beaches and the other one's explaining his summer dollars are the most important thing. And that's what we're at again here. That's what we're looking at. Summer dollars are going to win out. Uh, the tour is going to go ahead. I hope no one dies as a direct result of the rugby. Um, but we're never going to, it's going to be tarnished forever because we're going into they're literally going into the epicenter of COVID in South Africa uh, as their base. So like what, what more needs to be said? We know they're not going to stop it because there's too much, there's what millions and millions on the line and cash is king. The, the broadcasters, we've seen it all the way through sport all year. And uh, there's no off seasons for everybody because the next season has to be played because broadcast deals have been signed and there's millions on the line. It's people's livelihoods. Mm-hmm. Well, so people are choosing putting themselves and their families risk at health so they can bring in the salary. And um, that's the horrible catch-22 situation we're in and it'll we'll roll into the lines with it now. There has been a stark backdrop to all sport over the last year. One instance where it has been postponed was the Indian Premier League. When things got so serious there, became so serious over there, that was postponed. And that must be the fear now for this Lions tour, Tommy. Yeah, it, should, it shouldn't be happening. Like we know it shouldn't be happening. Uh, like we've had this conversation, you know, as Gavin said, 
so many times. Brings me back to the October, November last year when we were having the same conversation about the GA Championship. Bit different then because the concern was obviously that GA players were couldn't be put in bubbles and would be going into uh, the community. But we're still having the same sort of moral question that like, was it better that we did we have to march on with this for the greater good and for you know because it was something that that simply had to happen or or you know you know did the would the greater damage outweigh any of the the the, the the good that it would bring um just in terms of of the paper coverage um the sunday indo has a piece by a presume uh, a south african journalist um clinton vanderberg and it's just like clearly it's it is true it is about contracts it is about money it is about uh, as we know fulfilling broadcast deals and it has to happen and we know the lions funds so much of rugby in the southern hemisphere i remember reading about New Zealand rugby ran at a loss, and you know, and and made its money when the Lions came to town. But he, there, there, there is the other angle. I don't know this guy's um, background or or his, um, you know, what what his standing in as a rugby, South African rugby uh, journalist is. But he opens a piece by saying, it said the headlines fed up South Africans eager for an end to domestic strife. So South Africans of all hues have a word they use to express themselves. When they're fed up, we are gutful, and he says we are gutful of COVID, gutful of not playing. So the, I guess the point is they're just desperate to see the sp- Springboks in action. Okay, the rugby fans, I guess, in South Africa are. It says despite the bleak national mood, there is great expectation ahead of the tour. The suggestion that it be pushed out 12 months was given short shrift by the punters, even with the certainty that it will be a television-only affair. They have grown fatigued of the endless diet of domestic fare and are desperate to watch the Springboks again. So look, that's. That's an aspect of this that that they are having the same conversation over there. Yeah. That presumably there people in South Africa are making those same points. Oh, it'll lift the national mood. It'll be great, you know, in the midst of all this to have it to enjoy. To me, I mean, the Lions. You know, I was in Australia back in 2001 and went to the Lions game, and I remember the big thousands of fans together. And to me, that's that's kind of what the Lions thing is all about. And that this this just feels extra hollow. As a as a you know a playing out of the lines because you don't have those travelling ar- army of fans and that great that great sense of everything that goes around the lines and it just makes really does make it feel like we are playing this out because it has to take its place in the calendar because it has to go on because there's so much sponsorship and television and broadcast tied up in it. Um, so look, yeah, we're we've had this conversation before so many times over the last year and a half and. And on onwards we we trudge, onwards we march. Yeah, white South, to figure to say, Joe, white South Africa definitely wants it to happen because they're not being as badly affected by COVID, uh, by COVID as it's ripping through the townships and stuff like that. Sure. So, that was my thought reading reading that piece as well, Gavin. That I, I'm kind of going, is this guy writing from the, a rugby the perspective? Point of view of white? Yeah, which, which yeah. is kind of you know it's a bit troubling as well, isn't it? And can I ask the question, gents, if the Lions Tour doesn't go ahead, will that have any effect whatsoever on improving the COVID situation over there? Now, with one proviso, proviso, by the way, the South African Union seem to be lobbying to have 10,000 supporters into stadium for test series matches. Now, that should absolutely not happen. And I hope the government say, I'm sorry, that's not happening under the circumstances. But on the assumption that there are no fans allowed in and this is just a television event, how does stopping yeah, I was the tour? The how, how, that, does, how does stopping the tour improve the COVID situation in South Africa in any way whatsoever? Yeah, I, I, I was talking on, on on the idea that there will be um, there will be people in state fans in state. Okay, that'd be crazy. Um, crazy. That, that would be crazy. But yeah. would you be surprised if you see it happening in not eight six weeks time? <sighs> the test series. No, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. I would hope they make the right decision. I mean, it might depend on how serious this third wave gets. They're kind of at the. They're still climbing at the moment. They don't know. I was reading certain experts aren't quite so sure why this spike is so severe. You know, there are question marks over the variant, over what's going on. So it remains to be seen how serious it gets. I think if... if, You know what? Sorry, Tommy, go ahead. If if the the severity of this this wave gets to the level where what we experienced, you know, in March last year and, and over Christmas and everything was shut down, you know that everything was shut down for a reason. Like you couldn't, you couldn't even have closed doors sporting events. You know that's when you kind of go, well, this. Why is this happening? 
because you know, well, Craig Ray said, things. "You're right, Tommy." Craig Ray said that there's people dying in corridors of hospitals because doctors can't get to them. So we are. That's where we're at. But yeah. Joe, you're also right that the games could go ahead. But is it more like, that it feels somehow be... disrespectful to the population to be having this sport when they're in crisis? Is is it that the optics feel wrong as opposed to any tangible well, so, effect? South Africa is such a big country that there's, there's going to be just so many diverse views on that. that you won't be able to kind of nail down yes. a distinct opinion on that. But what I will say is, George, we'll say this Georgia game doesn't go ahead this week, OK? Because the entire box squad are, in, are put in isolation and retesting and there could be more than three positives. Hmm. So we're there going into a game of rugby where they haven't played a game of rugby for almost two years, which yeah. is just madness, you know? Or And like Georgia, they're better off doing training ground games than playing Georgia anyway. It's not yeah, going to get there, them there is a, there is a second game scheduled against Georgia, but that may go by the wayside as well. Yeah. Um, and also, like we thought it was really unfair on Japan. Again, just there you go. You drop yourself into a test match uh, yesterday mm. where you could see the glimpses of how brilliant the rugby team they are and what they could have done if they were given the opportunity to build on their World Cup, but they weren't. So, yeah, and then the Lions, as we know, is a makeshift team, uh, a gathering of uh, of people to try and pull something spectacular off that's based in ridiculous um, the history and all that stuff that Tommy was rightly going on about it a minute ago. Uh, so if we get a really good test match rugby, and it's, an, it's a remarkable achievement by everybody involved, um, but... I, I struggle to see how we just, it's just not carnage in income injury, lapping up as we go through the weeks well, and get yeah. to the test series with nothing like the two teams we're expecting. I suppose there are two two fronts, aren't there? There's the the optics or just yeah. the, the morality of this thing going ahead if the situation gets very serious, which is a very subjective question, but a serious one. And then point two is the logistics, Tommy, as in if there's three Springboks infected already and Georgia game in yeah. doubt, then... You know, the odds and you're getting through this eight game schedule and the South Africans having their other two games intact seems remote at this point. Yeah, it's all like so much of, of sport is, has felt on a knife edge. Like every time a competition concludes, there's a you know a round of patting everybody on the back for getting through it. You know, well done UEFA for getting through the Champions League and well done, you know, and even in the Euros we've seen with the Billy Gilmore and all that stuff, um, it's always there. As a matter of interest, I mean, how strong was what was the push to have it put back? A year. I mean, is is that a case that the Lions were just told that's your spot in the calendar? Everything else is is measured out for the next. For yeah, I think future. that was. I think that Tommy was ruined by there's too many there's set in stone test matches for next season that involves Northern Hemisphere team, Southern Hemisphere team, New Zealand matches in New Zealand, and there again huge money on the line there. Um. So no, it was it was go do it now and yeah. I, I actually I think when they, she came down to it and they got into the, one of their last meetings I just went there's just no way we can change this and just financially uh, the, the money on the line I think when all the sponsors came in and everything you can't take us from that slot you can't move us to Australia it kills the broadcasting times everything was just like we just we're in a, we're in a bind here uh, and on we go um, I, I've been, I'm, I can't wait to like that's why I'm always quite hesitant like how will history view all of this you know how will history view how we dealt with this like we know history won't reflect well on how we as a society behaved or or was allowed to behave in December, you know. But again, we, we need it's very hard to understand. Like sport is just driving through, and we know sport is just driving through, and there's no player welfare. Player welfare is so far down the list because of the financial imperatives, not just for uh, everyone outside of it, but the actual athletes themselves. Mm. So, you know, um we are in we're in ridiculously uncharted territory. Yeah, it's an incredibly stark backdrop, that's for sure. It's a world away from the 09 tour. So that's the Lions. Tommy, the Euros are progressing. There's loads of pieces in the papers. Wayne Rooney caught the eye again in the Sunday Times. He just delivers his views in really interesting way on how England should play. There's Jonathan Northcroft. There's Rod Little putting the boot into everyone. There's uh, Shane McGrath what Stephen Kenny can learn from the Euros. Coverage all over the place. What caught your eye? What do you want to give us on the Euros in the papers today? Um, yeah, I think I think the, the England-Germany... Um uh, stuff is is interesting because we're obviously getting uh, Irish versions of UK papers in, in in terms of like the the tabloids, um, and the Sunday Times and the Mail on Sunday, for example. So you're getting a flavour of their coverage, and I just think it's it's fantastic, like that it's all bubbling up into this. Like they just are, you know, they they're just loving it. It's England, Germany. It's you know, if it, on that and there's. It's, I can't remember what, what I think it's Rod Little's piece where he talks about the, the horrible few seconds where 
few moments where it looked like it'd be England Hungary. It was like, oh, that's just no fun at all. You know, it's like this is. Completely... Rod Little says of Tuesday, nobody's actually looking forward to Tuesday's game, are they? Not in the sense that it might be a really fun evening. It's like having the Hancocks over for dinner or something. Is how he kicks things off. Uh, by the way, there's so many pieces across all the papers on like penalty shootouts and how are England going to win this game in penalties. It's like this game has already gone to penalties, the coverage. It's not like how are we going to win this game in normal time? You know it's how will we not lose on penalties? Do you know where I'll start with this, which yeah. is a great way to start to frame the thing, is, is Tommy Conlon's piece. So it's, it, the Irish uh, Irish writers are, are kind of into it, wading into it knee deep. And there's a piece, I think Keith Duggan had uh, a piece on uh, Conlon on, on Southgate as well. You know, people are fascinated by him as a contrast to the sort of traditional English uh, you know Henry the Fifth leader. Um, you know Con- Conlon's piece is is you know he says if it were framed purely as a psychodrama rather than a mere matter of football, it could be viewed as a time of struggle between uh, maturity and immaturity, between adulthood and adolescence, basically between men and boys. He's talking about the tr- traditional uh, confrontation of England and Germany, where England are the in- insecure, you know, come into the game in a whole state of mental sort of turmoil, and the Germans seem to be just you know, icy cool doesn't mean as much to them and they, they tend to win. Whereas his Conlon's point is that maybe that has twisted this time that Southgate's sort of measured management means England come into the, the game as the sort of stable uh, unit and the Germans are a bit all over the place with their, you know, how like which German team is going to turn up, we're saying before this game, which is something, you know, it's like the French rugby cliche and something you never say about, about the Germans. So psychodrama is the word that you, you take out of that. It, it is a psychodrama for England. And Rooney's piece is really interesting in that because he, you know, he goes through his, his view of who should play for England, why they should play, and that's kind of interesting. He says Rice, Phillips and Henderson should all play, make it really solid in the midfield, and then Rashford and Sterling to get in behind the high uh, German defence. But he goes on to talk about his own experience in 2010 and why he was rather... He says... Despite their form, Germany are the toughest second-round opposition England could have. He would rather Portugal or France. Yeah. And he explains that because his 2010 experience and the, remember the in Bloemfontein and Lampard's disallowed goal and the the whole everything about it. He says what I learned about England Germany fixtures was that the build-up, the pressure, the desire to win was greater than normal internationals. It's one of the biggest rivalries in football. Our performance was better than a result, but I also learned that's what Germany can do. They're efficient, and more times than not, they take their chances. So he's wading into the psychodrama of it. And if you look elsewhere in the papers, I think the mail is is really good for that. There's there's a two, double page spread of you know Gareth Southgate's an interview with Teddy Sheringham about the team of '96, Southgate missing the penalty, a profile of all the the other players who didn't become successful in management, who you think or become managers. To, this, to the level that Southgate has come from, you might have thought might be more uh, likely to. And then there's another pages, two other pages, Jermaine Genus and Danny Murphy arguing out the key questions, picking their special teams. And then, as you say, a whole page on penalties, including Jordan Pickford's crib sheet, which it's just great. Like, I love when, especially, you know, they, they just throw in lots of little sidebars and little boxes and things that it's, it's great sort of, you know, hype and... Yeah, I really, I, I, like I said, I thought Rooney was great, and the way he explains the tactics just so digestible and makes such sense. Yeah. So, I mean, in effect, he was saying Germany, they've got their fullbacks high, they're pressing you high in midfield. Generally, they have more possession 62% against France, 58 against Portugal, 75 against Hungary. He said, when you eventually get the ball off them, they want you to play a pass to feet. And so he, he's thinking, you know, Jack Grealish, Phil Foden, this is not for you. They want you to play a pass to feet because they're pushed right up they'll go press you high up the pitch they'll take the ball off you so basically when he when England get the ball effectively he wants in his world Rashford and Sterling to be taken off down the channels balls clipped down the line and that's how you get at Germany and I guess it's a plan it's clear it makes sense I mean it's interesting Germany were written off for their performance against France in the first game Rooney thought it was one of the best performances he saw at Euro 2020 so it's pretty interesting he's free thinking there does anyone in England, Joe, do you think, uh, ever keep stick to one team that they want to see play, pick? Oh, there's there's, everyone, there's not a constant. single same team here. I've Danny Murphy and Jermaine Genius yeah. picking totally different teams. Rooney picking a different team. It just shows how Southgate can't pick the right team. Someone will have Never. issues. Yeah. yeah. 
I thought Rooney's last two powers were very interesting. If I read very like the Ghost Rider going, um, just so you know, Foden said you said this the whole issue you made about Foden was brought up this week. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. uh, maybe we should add in or or maybe Rooney's got a bit of feedback going, come on, you were Foden one stage. Do you want to be so he's like, I just want to say that uh, I have a lot of time for him, but uh, he definitely he shouldn't be in the team, but he can come into the game and yeah. change it all for him yeah. and be the hero, but just not at the start. On um, Rod Little, and by the way, I can't ever, ever turn the page on Rod Little and not hear Eamon Dunphy. I just can't. It just, just <laughs> doesn't, it's just impossible anyway. so I could just hear Michael Fry's song. You know, that's <laughs> it. Mario yeah. Rosenstock played Michael Fry to Eamon Dunphy in his podcast a while back. I mean, it just keeps getting more and more meta. It's wonderful. So... <laughs> Uh, it's so, one of the great songs of that of our generation. Eddie, I look, Michael Fry, uh, genuflect before you. So what Rod Little says here, nobody will be working on Tuesday afternoon. This is for the Germany game. Half the nation will suddenly be on furlough. Like a royal wedding. It's still one of those uh, rapidly dwindling occasions when the nation comes together and one might expect viewing figures to be in excess of 20 million. The game is on the BBC, which is a mixed blessing. He says the commentary tends to be better. Jermaine Genus is close to decent, although he says I would have preferred the morose and perpetually depressed musings of Mark Lawrenson. He says, meanwhile, ITV has the better pundits with the monosyllabically, hard to say that word, caustic and seemingly borderline psychopathic Roy Keane, the laddish fanaticism of Ian Wright and the ever astute observations of Graeme Souness, who seems to understand what's going on. On the BBC's band of regulars, only the excellent Alan Shearer talks very much sense. He says, I have never heard a single utterance from Rio Ferdinand that enlightened me about anything. He says, Jürgen Klinsmann's English is better than most of the pundits. And he says, Mika Richards, who I love, is an awful analyst. So that's Rod Whittle's uh, work done for the week. <laughs> we need to get him analysing the uh, Virgin Media panel sometime soon. Klinsmann lived in California for a long time, though. So, you know, that's a bit harsh by Rod there on poor Jürgen. It is. Jeez, he's gone from there. But uh, I guess this is all the fun and games that happens around uh, Euros times. So there's so much English-Germany coverage. Shane McGrath in the Mail on Sunday is talking about the fact that Stephen Kenny is jetting around watching some of these games and he's making the point that with lots of the lesser teams you would have seen a lot of pragmatism, a lot of let's be solid and let's, uh, you know, not do anything silly and he wonders will Stephen Kenny bring some of that into the September internationals not least against Portugal. And that's kind of an interesting point, I think, Gav. I mean, like you turn on a lot of the matches and it's funny because we only watch a lot of Ireland during the qualifiers. You kind of think everybody must be streets ahead of us. And you see a lot of very pragmatic, dull matches as well in there, as good as the tournament has been. You wonder if that will jump out to Stephen Kenny as well as, you know, trying to play football and do what he's trying to do. It's just the players right now make that difficult. Two things jumped off the page from Jane's pieces. Uh, Stephen Kenny needs to be asked when he next does media is, your, your opinion of Hungary after the Hungary game, how much did that change after seeing the levels they went up to in the pool stages? Because they were they just looked a far, far better team yeah. and far, far able to cope with that group of death than we would have even had a chance, I think. And we seem to live with them, you know? So they're friendly to competitive football. It's just completely different gravy, obviously. And, and then I remember Brian Kerr just after um, the last batch of uh, June friendlies, he was a... Uh, uh, promoting a sorry gig and he, he turned around and he goes look you're not going to be able to uh, Stephen came out and preached about how basically the beautiful game will be played and will keep possession football and I'm sure if he should have known but if he doesn't know he definitely knows now you're not going to be Ireland teams are never going to be able to keep the ball in international football so um, that whole great idea and that great philosophy and I'd say the Euros has reinforced it I'd say any we're just going to have to come up with a different way of playing against even the mediocre teams because we're just not going to be able to keep the ball against them any day. What about that, Tommy? Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, in, in gen, as a general point, like I, I think I had, I did notice. Well, I mean, it's a small sample size. It's only the, it's only three games, and one of them was against Andorra. But after the Luxembourg defeat, I thought I did notice a, a sense of pragmatism coming into the way Ireland were playing, in that he wasn't as wedded to, um, to sort of playing it out from the back and, and uh, I, I ideologically um, approached as uh, I think ideology as. Shane McGrath says, for most of his first year in charge of Ireland, Kenny seemed more wedded to ide- ideology than lived experience. Well, he certainly has the lived experience after losing at home to Luxembourg. Mm. Um, and I thought the performance against Hungary, albeit you're right, how how up you know, how engaged were the Hungarian players a week out from their uh, tournament opener that night. But I thought it was a good performance. It was a pragmatic performance, but not not pragmatic in a let's get loads of men behind the, the ball sort of way. 
it was a good it was we were well organized we we understood the players uh understood the system they were playing uh, made adjustments when they had to it was just the bench was the, the management the coaching was good and that they made changes tweaked things at half time and there was generally a sense there was just a sort of a, a proper this was a proper international team now so that i think that's encouraging what 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 i think you know is that i'm watching these euro games and and, I, and I'm, you know, is, is it about pragmatism? Is it about idealism? I don't think it's about that at all. I think that's kind of missing the point. What Ireland need to go, where Ireland need to go for under Kenny, and I think that's where they're sort of getting to that point after a really hard first year, mm. is in, is to become a smart team, to basically become a modern football team, a modern Best international team. football yeah. team, well coached, no, be able to change, be able to. Uh, adjust systems and adjust approaches within games, before games, tactically intelligent, well-prepared, well-briefed on their opposition. Um, you, know, you know, play through the lines when they have to, um, switch between playing you know, direct and short. You know, we talk about Rooney saying how English should approach uh, as needed. Um, become a smart football team. You know, you, you talk about teams being pragmatic in this Euros, but you don't see... Ireland, you don't see any team playing like we did under Martin O'Neill. Like you don't see four cent, four defenders on top of the keeper and you know, five in midfield on top of them, and totally seeding everything. Like every team, okay, even if they're outgunned, they play with the structure, but they try and play it out through the lines. There, you know, a lot of a lot of teams play with the back five and then try and get wing backs forward. And you know, they all they all clearly have a, a well rehearsed game plan, whether the, whether the football is thrilling or not. And I I think that. I, it's funny you should mention. I was thinking about this, and and Brian Kerr would always say, you know, just doing a lot of the matches with him, you know, his experience. International football is hard, right? You have an idea, <laughs> what you want to do with your team, but the other crowd have an idea as well, and they have a plan, and you come up and you you come in with your plan and your great ideas, but they they'll come back with something as well, and that's that's the ball game there. It's. It's being in that arena and adjusting. And we've seen teams, you know, Austria looked atrocious against uh, Netherlands, really good against Italy last night. And, Brilliant defending, you know, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just think it's, it's not a, it's not pragmatism versus idealism. It's simply becoming, taking our place among, uh, you know, modern, uh, well-coached, forward-thinking football teams, technically good, and and taking it from there, and and, you know, producing game plans for each game to get the best out of the players that we have. Tommy, I thought a, a lot of what uh, what you just said there was evident when uh, after about ten minutes in the Wales Denmark game yesterday. Now a lot of this was pointed out to me at half time by pundits, but uh, what they did was the way they pushed up on Ramsey and Bale, uh, Denmark. They were going out there playing a pragmatic style, and they switched to four four two and neutralized, just just rubbed Ramsey and Bale's influence out of the game and won four nil. Um, I just thought that if the intelligence, the coaching intelligence and the ability for the team and all Kenny keeps going on about is we have to be able to switch in games. We have to be able to switch from game to game. It's our only way. We can't just play a certain way. Like he's aware, he's going to have, a, I'd say Stephen Kenny will have a fountain of knowledge coming on his way to the Algarve in September. I don't know if it would be enough to make any difference in those three matches, but I thought that Wales-Denmark game, just the way Denmark shifted, I don't know if yeah. you saw it, and they just took Bale, just Bale just disappeared. We probably never see yeah. him playing international football again because they just went, right, we're just gonna go on and we're gonna and Ramsey's gonna have no influence on this game. And this is a yeah. Denmark team that have had to change their philosophies quite significantly in the last few weeks. And um, it wasn't just crested a wave stuff from them, it was just really intelligent uh, tactical shifts that won them a game. Yeah. Yeah, I just as a as a tangent to that, Denmark are a very interesting one as well, because you remember Denmark uh, got rid of uh uh, Alga Harida or Alga Harida, the grizzled uh, Norwegian coach who they had when we we played them, uh, when O'Neill was there, and he qualified them for the Euros, and his contract wasn't renewed because there was a feeling in Denmark that they wanted to play again a more, um, a more progressive style of football, and you know whenever, you know a federation or a club do that, there's all there's always a bit of rolling their eyes and saying, well you're going to get rid of a guy who gets the job done and. For some uh, aspirational, you know, ide- idealistic way of playing football, but what you see from Denmark in this tournament is that, you know, they're. I mean, that uh, Dansgaard has come in and is doing the, the Ericsson job. Like they, they're they're clearly a lot more. Um, there's a lot more to them as a team than than when they were under their previous manager when when they they were quite direct, and and play you know played off, um, played off Poulsen and and. Uh, 
Braithwaite and, and Ericsson got the ball and played from there. Um, but yeah, so um, that's that's it. That, that yeah. it's it's just you know being a modern a modern team. We will uh, race through the final few stories with Gavin Kuminski and Tommy Martin in just a second. Down one eleven, Donegal two twenty three. The latest from Yuri as they come to a close. There, back in one sec. Final few stories in the papers next. Now then, you're very welcome back. So we are chatting papers with Gavin Kuminski and Tommy Martin. We'll run through the final few stories. We've kind of got stuck deep there on the Euros and on the line situation. So we'll race through a couple, few interesting pieces right across the board. So one which, I don't know, Gav, I've reservations about even talking about this because I kind of want to get to a point very quickly where this is not talked about and this isn't something that even needs to happen. No announcement needs to be made. But uh, we'll mention it nonetheless. This is a very small piece. Blink and you'd miss it. Page 20 of the Sunday Independent. Maybe there'll be bigger pieces across the week. So Leinster, second row, Jack Doney's 22 years of age and has spoken publicly for the first time about his bisexuality, saying maybe there are some kids across the country who could do with a role model. He took part in a Leinster rugby panel discussion as well as appearing on the BBC's LGBT sports podcast. So what Jack Dunn says is... I've been out as bisexual for four or five years now, but not out in the media. I kind of realised when I was 15 or 16, but you're in a school full of teenage boys. A lot of them would say things that they wouldn't even be thinking about, but they're just doing it out of ignorance. So when you hear that, you just want to keep things to yourself. Being bisexual is almost a blessing and a curse. You can hide it way easier. You can go out with the lads and do all that stuff, but it's easier to not be true to yourself. Eventually in sixth year, I told one or two people they took it really well, so I decided to tell everyone. And if someone has a problem with it, then that's on them. It went pretty well. There were one or two people who said you're not bisexual, you are gay and you won't come out. But largely it was overwhelmingly positive. So it was a massive weight off the shoulders when I did that. Dunn said the news won't surprise his teammates at Leinster who've known for years. So Gav, I put it to you, look, We've got to get to a point pretty soon where somebody like Jack Dunn doesn't feel the need to have to make some kind of announcement or can if he wants to in so much as players might want to be open about their partners in life generally. I mean, we saw in the NFL an active player coming out for the first time. I think this is great. I think uh, Jack Dunn will get in the main huge support from everybody. Don't want to make too big a deal about it either because it's just so not a big deal. Generally, someone's sexual orientation is one of the least interesting things about them. But it is significant that it's an active rugby player in this country coming out in not a big deal kind of way. It's not front page. It's as part of an LGBT sports podcast. I hope he gets a lot of support. I'm, I'm so happy for him that he yeah, was too. able to do it in sixth year. I'm so happy for him that he wasn't put off going into a sporting sphere, which often has macho elements and maybe things are said in dressing rooms that wouldn't be said in other industries. And I'm so happy for him that he's not going to spend, he's 22 now, he's not going to spend the next mm. seven, eight, nine, ten years of what should be a really, really exciting, happy time for him, professional sports career, thinking, will I, won't I, will I say anything, is someone going to out me? All of that stuff is now off his shoulders and you just wish him the best of luck. But yeah, It's Pride Month, Joe, you know, so if he was going to do it, he might as well do it. And I'd say it was kind of just to, just to get past this because, but I have nothing but... Uh, I, it still takes an enormous amount of courage and I have nothing but um, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm just so impressed with him. And I, now, also, not many people probably know about this guy. This is a six foot eight. Uh, it says he's 112 kg, but unlike James Ryan, he's got enough of a frame to make that 120 kg. He's a 22 year old. He's going to be a theoretical physicist if he wants to someday. Um, this, uh, this, this kid is way beyond uh, rugby and uh, he's embraced this. He went on the BBC LGBT podcast to talk about this. And um, it's the subtlety of it and the way it's come out. I love it. You know, mm. um, I really like that. And how it's, and I, hopefully, yeah, maybe he'll end up talking to you guys about it and all that. Because um, I've only had very short interactions with him, but he's this is a really uh, kind of a special guy. Whether rugby is his thing, I hope, actually think from I've I've seen him in a lot of preseason games and a handful of Leinster stuff. And I he's just a big unit. He could do he can do lots of things in rugby, and I hope he does. But there's a lot more forward, uh, this guy, in, in future life. When talking to, um, I interviewed Katie McCabe recently, um, and uh, the whole issue of her sexuality um, was very, was, just wasn't a part of the interview, wasn't a major part of the interview. But when, when I touched on it going, isn't it a pity, at the end of the interview, because she, she dissociated with um, 
uh, the LGBTQ colours in the Aviva Stadium last year for the Pride celebrations, and she'd kind of come out and not not come out, but she'd already been always out. But she was her, herself and her partner talked about openly about it. All I said to her was, "Isn't it a pity that you can't? The Pride Month is kind of people can't do. There's not celebrations. There's not marches in the cities and really good times." And I kind of was happy to leave it at that. And she spoke for about ten minutes about uh, the influence she had on. The texts and the emails on Instagram and stuff that she got from teenage girls and boys who have said, "What you've done as an international, as the Ireland captain, coming out and saying I am this sexuality, it's it's given me the courage to tell my best friend or to tell my mom, or and that's what Jack Dunn's done here this weekend. Not in a big fanfare or anything like that, but rugby players from middle class backgrounds who are gay, and there's thousands of them in Ireland. Don't think there isn't. Um, they can now t- turn around and go, oh, I might." I might tell my coach, I might tell my sister. Um, so what Katie did last year and what Jack has just done this weekend, um, I'm not exaggerating. This could, this will save lives. Yeah. Tommy? Yeah, it's funny. We were talking about um, before the before the slot earlier when we were discussing the stories and it obviously came yesterday and late to get coverage in the papers. But we were kind of like, should this be a bigger story? Is this a big story? Is it ni- isn't it nice that it's kind of a small story that you know, was announced on a podcast and kind of gets dropped out in an in brief. And it's like, you know, I, I can't imagine anybody doesn't have the attitude of that's great. Delighted yes. for him. Yeah. It's no big deal. You know, like it, but, cer- it certainly wasn't going to be our lead it, topic on the pay-per-view. Yeah, though. exactly. Yeah. It's not like, but, you know, I think, I don't know if it was Gavin who said it or someone, one of the um, mentioned somewhere that he is the only, is he the only um, active Irish rugby player Who's come out as bisexual? Male, or? male, 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 male. Yeah, yeah. So we, we should be past this. Which is which is key, obviously, because you know it is still a big deal. Clearly, if he is, um, yeah. and as you say, how many people will be inspired by that? And as he said himself, how many kids will be or will will feel courage from that? I mean, I, I think of reading Gareth Davies' autobiography; it still stays with me. You know the yeah. the story of his the the, the sheer um, rage hell. that was within him, the hell that yeah. he went through. You know, just yeah. just that that of what he came through from you know small town Welsh background, suppressing suppress what he suppressed for so long, and what it what yeah. where he went to himself before he before he got the courage to do it, to to come out and and you know change his course in his life. Like he he was married with. I don't feel kids to do, but I mean, it was, you know, it was so powerful. And I can't, you can't imagine the thousands of people that would have been inspired by that. So, Jack so is not going to go through the negative experiences that, yeah. uh, that, that, that happened there. And I read your column on Friday, uh, like there's Hungarian kids that I hope this gets to because yeah. uh, like what, what now, so like the 15 year old in say Dublin, who's going to St. Michael's now and who's gay can read this and can listen to that podcast with Jack Dunn. But, uh, and can, and the, and the the young footballers that can I can look at Katie, but the uh, like but you wrote about what's going on in Hungary like you know um, and I, I was delighted the way Stephen Kenny handled that um, last month there when uh, after everything gone on there and their um, their treatment of things and it's it's bleeding into sport all the time so mm-hmm. it's important that we have these people saying this and normalizing it because there's a lot of people out there who don't yeah. want to normalize it who want to make it a, a stigma yeah it's yeah absolutely. Well, kudos to him. Good on him, Jack Dunn, and best of luck with his career, the rugby career, which I think we'll all be more concerned with over the coming 10 years or so. He's uh, a good player. Yeah, well, that's great to hear as well. I mean, the higher profile, the better. So, a uh, few other pieces to hit. Mark O'Shea, don't have to dwell on it, reckons Kerry will win the All-Ireland, thinks that bit of fearlessness will be good for them. He told a great story about his brother, Darrell O'Shea. Well, he did, at both ends, I think, was his point, but uh, nervous before the... Uh, an All-Ireland match and he was saying the older you get sometimes you get more nervous and he got more nervous as he got older he said Kerry have that bit of fearlessness now and often it's that kind of a team that topple a Dublin S team there's a good piece with John Conlon the Clare hurler well Clare forward now turned centre back I thought in the Sunday Times of all the GA pieces I just thought this was 
Interesting. So uh, he did his cruciate. I hadn't realised this because the way life goes. He did his cruciate, John Conlon, a week before the first lockdown, got the operation done very quickly before elective surgery stopped and converted his garage into bench, squat bars, dumbbells, painted it, got a TV going, got Claire Physio on Zoom and he went at it and he said, before I got injured, before the cruciate, I could barely do any long running, which is kind of surprising. He said, my back was killing me. I could barely sit down. But he says, I've got everything sorted now. So he's turned himself into an absolute specimen. And he said, before he got injured, he was almost like, you know, wrong side of 30. Don't really know if I want to play anymore. And how much have I got left in the tank? And the injury almost reminded him what he was giving up. And he's come back a new man. He's been made captain. And it seems he's just an all-round committed player. You won't be surprised here. 2018, Conan changed his eating habits. He was always conscientious about his diet, but in matches he often felt bloated. He couldn't understand why. Nutritionists suggested they carry out tests on his digestion. And in the backwash, Conlon changed his diet dramatically. Cut out red meat, bread, milk, peppers, tomatoes, foods he loved, but weren't agreeing with them. And he even started blending his food for a while. Spent a lot of lockdown practicing his shooting nonstop. And then his third session back with Claire, they said, how about centre back? And he's gone very well and he's working on it and he's playing today. So I thought that was that was pretty good on the GA front. Aging tennis stars at Wimbledon. Gaff, this is in the Mail on Sunday. I know there were other pieces. Roger Federer talking in the Mail about how he usually rents out two houses, one for the entourage, one for the family at Wimbledon. Now it's all Westminster, I think, is where they are. They're very much in a bubble, no family there, but he's into his 40th year. He can't believe he's still playing in his 40th year. That wasn't his plan. Yeah, um, yeah. there's a good piece. I think you said it was one in the Mail. It was there's one in the Mail today, yeah. Yeah, there was one yesterday's Times about the over 35s. Um, uh, it's fascinating how they're keeping the younger generations down right across the board still. Um, I think probably for next week's Sunday review, there should be something. Andy Murray's quotes are talking, they didn't actually, again, I'm talking about stuff that wasn't reported this week that I'm surprised. Andy Murray on domestic abuse, considering who his opponent is in the first round of Wimbledon. Very interesting piece, very interesting quotes this week from Andy Murray, uh, who is clearly a gentleman. And um, In effect, he was yes. bemoaning the lack of protocol if there are allegations of domestic abuse against a tennis player. Yeah, and there's, okay. there's there's two major names in, in, that come into that uh, spear when we, we talk about that. Okay, but again, it'll probably be a, uh, it'll be it'll all be washed out by the actual tennis come next week. But you know how it goes. Um, the over thirty five thing is very interesting, just because they're all still going strong. Mm. Um, yeah. Back page of the Sunday Times, Tommy David Walsh. This is going to be, I suspect, a big talking point as the Olympics get closer and closer. So Laurel Hubbard will become the Olympics' first transgender athlete. Debates over her inclusion must accept that she has earned the right to compete by meeting all the required criteria. Rights, David Walsh. I, 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 so he sums up the general situation. I think people are pretty familiar with it at this stage, and he makes the point that the argument against Hubbard relates to the strength and power that she will have accumulated from 34 years living as a man. How can this be fair on biologically female rivals? And so studies, mostly on non-athletes, show that the lowering of their testosterone only partially diminishes the strength advantage enjoyed by trans women. Hubbard's not expected to win gold. She is a contender for silver or bronze. And Walsh writes, perhaps over time results will show that trans women weightlifters enjoy a significant advantage and then it will be up to the IOC to review its guidelines. In the interim, we should allow Hubbard to compete without rancour. She's painfully shy, does not do interviews and four years have passed since she addressed questions about her situation. So it's, it's, Walsh isn't coming down strongly one way or the other. I know Dr. Ross Tucker feels it is too much of an advantage for trans athletes in this event, but Walsh is making the point, let's remember in the interim She's abiding by all of the rules and I guess almost be kind is the message because I suspect she's facing a lot of attention over the next month. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's a very humane uh, take on the thing from David Walsh, very sympathetic um, one uh, shot through with his experience with um, uh, Pippa York, uh, who was born Robert Miller, who he's been spending time with in, on the Tour de France covering the tour, um, who you know, went through the same process of uh, gender dysphoria and um, has has um, has is now is now Pippa York. Um, and it's it's just a call for look. Um, Laurel Hubbard is abide abiding by the rules. Um, has been accepted under the, into the Olympics by the rules under the way they are at the moment. Do not. Uh, visit your reservations about this whole thing on her at a personal level, um, which is 
10 speed the way that these things naturally go. Um, unfortunately, because this is such a personal thing and uh, it, it, it speaks deep, you know, he talks about Laura Hubbard as a painfully shy person, doesn't do interviews for years have passed since she addressed questions about her situation. The, de the debate about the subject can't help but feel personal. So if you go, if you're going to cover the Olympics and you're going to talk about Laurel Hubbard in in the weightlifting and the questions around that, it is essentially the debate is essentially going to go to who to a very personal level about her, and it is very hard. You know, you can obviously I I, I mean I completely sympathise and and I liked the column because it is a call for uh, to be kind and be humane and and do not and you know. And do not go there in, in terms of and be careful how you how you talk about this. But it's just the nature of it. Like, it it's it's a, such a a difficult issue because it's it, it it brings something like inclusion, which is we talked about LBGT and Hungary and UEFA during the week, which is a, a a fundamental value that that we in sort of a liberal society and and, and a lot of Western societies hold to be true or hold to be something fundamental. And then the way sport is organized and, and things that, that Ross Tucker is, is much is much better qualified to explain about the, the science of it and categorization of people to make sport fair. And it's a really difficult area, you know, and, and, and to say anything more than, than I, I can't say anything more about it than to, to try and, and tackle it in a humane way if we're going to tackle it. But it's a really difficult, uh, it's a really difficult friction point between that sort of uh, idea of a value, uh, which is inclusion, um, versus trying to define what that actually means to, for the starting line of a, a, sport, a race or a weightlifting contest or a rugby match, for yes, example. Yes, there's cold hard science, there's inclusion, there's wanting to be fair to everyone. It's very difficult. Gavin, I wanted to mention this because of about a minute and you put this through. Little headway in concussion battle, Paul McInnes, it's in The Observer and The Sunday Independent. In effect, he's citing three incidents here in the Euros where concussion protocol have been, I mean, horrific. I mean, rugby is, is almost um, paranoid about this issue now with good reason. Football is like blindly hopping around here in the Euros doing very little. I, I It was interesting in the piece, so there are going to be spotters at the next World Cup, independents who'll sit there and look yeah. out for concussion. But at the moment, it's Wild West stuff. So what just from from the, my perspective, um, that when a doctor comes on to try and look at a football player, there's a they say he says in the piece that there's a two to three minute window. I feel like there's a 10 to 15 second window yeah. where he has to go. Is this person potentially concussed? Which uh, and because the need because VAR is slowed. So many things have slowed to get in. Football is all about pace and everything like that. And they're just like not letting them in to look. So it's an it, it's so basically you're putting all the pressure on the athlete to go on concussed and that's not going to ever happen. Like Joe Rodden, the Wales centre back, was he concussed? Did he get a, two smashes in the head yesterday? Nothing was checked, and he looked like he was wobbling. So like, um, yeah, he says he goes, but he's basically what he says. He was, um, he's interviewed uh, uh, Paul uh, McInnes. He interviews a top top class um, Luke Griggs, who's the deputy chief executive of the brain injury charity Headway. He goes, team doctors are placed in an impossible position they're asked to make a concussion assessment in two to three minutes under the gaze of the players the media and the watching fans yeah you also see referees urging the medics to get off the pitch yeah so we're uh, they're, they're heading for i'm it, it there's already been three shocking incidents or two certainly where people look knocked out cold yeah um they're way behind major yeah. problem they're way 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 way, way, way behind fellas we're at a time worse. but thank you so much for that it was great tommy martin from virgin media television gavin kumsky of the irish times thanks to you both thanks thanks joe thanks joe thanks, cheers Joey. Gav. Thanks. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Quick start car insurance you can sort anytime online, then bounce on with your day. Get a quote today at getsetgo.ie. The OTB Podcast Network with Get Set Go. Quick start car insurance you can sort anytime online, then bounce on with your day. Get a quote today at getsetgo.ie.